ask you a question as we get started. I want you to think about this, okay? It's a question about yourself. Do you think of yourself as a planner? Or do you prefer to go through life kind of more flying by the seat of your pants? Do you prefer to plan or do you like to wing it? Personally, for me, I love to be spontaneous as long as I can plan ahead for it. Are you a list maker? Do you make lists? When you go to the grocery store, do you, do you have it all written down what you're going to buy? Or do you just push your cart down the aisle and you know, you'll know it when you see it. If you forget it, you probably didn't need it anyway. How about when you travel? When you travel, do you bring a packing list? Or when it's time to go, do you just throw the stuff in the luggage and you're good to go? We're going to see today that God is a list maker. Maybe some of us will take comfort in that especially if we get teased for our list. In Ezra chapter 2, we're going to find one of the amazing lists that God made. It's 70 verses long. And if you've taken Pastor Mark's challenge and have been reading ahead, maybe when you got to chapter 2, you might have read this one rather quickly because there's just 70 verses of names. But I think we're going to find, as we do every time we open God's Word, there is so much here for you and for me apply right now in our lives. So much more than just 70 difficult verses of people's names that are hard to pronounce. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's begin by praying praying and asking God to bless this time. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a place we can come as your children. And we can meet a family like the Monk family. And we can see just a glimpse of what, what you're doing in the world. You're working everywhere all the time. And we ask right now, Father, for you to do the miracle of working in our hearts. Because we cannot understand the things of heaven unless you teach them to us, unless you reveal them to us. So we ask, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, show us the truth of what we're going to read today. Open our eyes to see you in ways we've never seen you before. We ask this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Ezra, chapter 2. Ezra, if you recall, is a priest. He's a, he was a wonderful teacher of the law of Moses. And he was also a scribe. A scribe is like a very precise, detailed historian. And the book of Ezra deals with a history period that's fascinating. It's when the people of Judah were coming out of captivity in Babylon. Let me have a map, first map, please. Let's take a quick look at a couple of maps, just to remind ourselves, in case we're not real good on our history of Israel. If you recall, when Israel, the children of Israel were taken out of captivity in Egypt, God led them to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And the land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel, as you see here. But this was, this was around 1400 B.C. Going forward in time, these 12 tribes had a problem. They continually struggled amongst themselves. They had trouble getting along with themselves. And they had trouble obeying God. In other words, they were human. They were just like us. Let me have the second map. About 500 years later, after they settled in the land of Canaan, the, around 930 B.C., the children of Israel split into two separate kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel, the yellow, was made up of the ten northern tribes. The kingdom of Judah was made up of the two southern tribes. After they made this division, it did not solve their sin problem. One more map. Map three, please. So about 200 years 
later, about 730 BC, God sent the Assyrians to be his instrument of judgment on the northern kingdom for their blatant disobedience and perverse idol worship. The kingdom of Israel was conquered and the people were scattered all over Assyria. That's, you can see that by the purple lines and arrows. Then a little over a hundred years after that, the, after the northern kingdom fell, the Babylonians were brought in by God to punish the people of Judah for their idolatry and evil in his sight. Babylon, if you wonder where Babylon would be today, Babylon would be about 50 miles south of where Baghdad is in Iraq. Jerusalem was almost totally destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar's army. Can I have the next piece of artwork, please? I thought this would help us visualize what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar's men pillaged that magnificent temple that Solomon built. You remember your history. King Solomon built this amazing temple and they ransacked it. Nebuchadnezzar took all the gold, he took all the silver, he took all the bronze. The book of Jeremiah tells us that the bronze alone was more than anybody could weigh. So much bronze, precious metal was there. Nebuchadnezzar took all the decorations and he took the bronze pillars. He took the lampstands and he took the incense bowls. He stole the pots. He stole the shovels. He took the wick cutters. He took the dishes. If it was worth anything at all, he went into the trunk of his chariot and went off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off the top leaders, the priests, the craftsmen, and the artisan. All he left behind were the poorest and weakest people to tend to the villages and the farms and the vineyards. The once proud city of Jerusalem, the capital, was left in shambles. The protective walls were knocked down. Most of the buildings were burnt to the ground. The independent nation of Judah ceased to exist because of sin. But God. Don't you love sentences that start with but God? But God in his grace promised to bring them home after 70 years of exile. In the Bible, 70 years is the equivalent of about two generations. But here's the problem, though, with God's promise. The Babylonians didn't get that memo. They had no intention of ever letting the captives go. So how on earth would God possibly fulfill his promise? The Babylonians were not going to play nicely. Imagine you were one of those captives. Imagine you've lived in captivity for 69 years and all that time you knew about the promise of God, but for 69 years there wasn't an inkling that the government was ever going to let you return. That would be like us. 69 years, that would be like us being in captivity since 1948. Pretty bleak and discouraging. Does life ever look bleak and discouraging to you? Maybe hopeless sometimes? You ever struggle to believe God in those times of testing, those painful times? When you pray, maybe pray hard, and you're waiting for God to act, does your faith grow stronger? Or does it grow weaker as the days, maybe weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years pass without an answer? You know, as human beings, I don't, I don't think we can help ourselves. We, um, when we start praying... We also start the clock ticking on God, don't we? Subconsciously or consciously, we, we sort of have in our mind a, a reasonable amount of time for God 
to fulfill his promise to us. So we, if, if that time is exceeded, if God takes longer than we expect, how does that affect us? How does that affect our walk with him? Isaiah chapter 40 describes the greatness of God in words that are so beautiful. I highly recommend you go home today and read Isaiah chapter 40. It will only take you a few minutes and it will bless you. Even if you've read it many times, it, it's amazing. Chapter 40 ends with these words, Isaiah 40, 31. They're going to come up on the screen. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk. Well, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Does this describe our experience when we're waiting for the Lord? The longer we wait, are we feeling like we're getting wings? Do we feel like we're getting less tired? Is our confidence growing in the Lord or is it becoming a little shakier? Many of the captives that went off to Babylon never came back because they lost their faith in God. They just became absorbed into the pagan culture. But not, not these people in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra 2 gives us a list of those whose heart the Lord had moved. If you skimmed it, you should read it more carefully. These names are real people. These are lives that God touched. These people wanted to follow the Lord wherever he wanted them to go. So we need to ask ourselves this question. What list are we on today? Where is your name written? Where's my name written? Are we listed with those who will follow the Lord no matter what? Think about that. We'll come back to that question. For 69 years of Babylonian captivity, it looked like God would not be able to fulfill his promise. The mighty Babylonians had no interest in returning the people of Judah, so God removed the mighty Babylonians with King Cyrus the Great of Persia, and Persia took over. In Persia's first year, in Cyrus's first year, God moved his heart to let the people return home, and God even moved his heart to take a free will offering, as we saw last week with Pastor Mark, so they could rebuild the temple. So here's the thing. If, if you ever struggle to trust God, if that ever is a struggle in your life, Ezra chapter 2 is going to give you 50,000 names. Ezra chapter 2 is going to give you 50,000 examples of God's faithfulness. Ezra chapter 2 is going to give you 50,000 reasons to trust God, no matter what. Here's the outline for our 70 verses today. We'll see the overview in verse 1, then we'll look at the people and provisions and the arrival. Let's look at verse 1. Ezra chapter 2, verse 1, begins like this. Now these are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. Those exiles that came out of Babylon, they had a long walk ahead. The distance from Babylon to Jerusalem was about 800 miles. That would be like us leaving here, here and walking to Sisters, Oregon, Pastor John and Caleb. It's a long walk. It took them about four months. These people proved the truth of what we just read in Isaiah. Those who wait upon the Lord will walk and not become weary. 
they walked 800 miles. And when they got to Jerusalem, they weren't tired. They got right to work rebuilding the temple. They were energized. That's what happens when we trust the Lord. You know how I know if I'm trusting in God or trusting in myself? When I'm trusting in me, I get tired. When I'm trusting in the Lord, the energy just keeps going. The people listed in Ezra 2 trusted the Lord to restore what sin had destroyed. You know what's amazing about our passage? These 70 verses, this list we have today? It's really much longer than 70 verses. In fact, the list we're reading gets longer every day because God has not finished writing it yet. God is still in the restoration business. Every minute of every day, God faithfully and lovingly provides a way for you and me to be restored to him, to Jesus Christ. Here's the thing we need to understand about sin. We are free to sin. We're free to sin. But sin cannot set us free. Sin doesn't lead to freedom. Sin only leads one place. Captivity. Sin takes us to places we never wanted to go. Look what else sin does. Look at verse 1 again. The returning exiles are not called the children of Judah or the children of God. What are they called? People of the province. Once, Judah stood out in the entire world as a powerful, great, independent kingdom known for their love of the living God. Now they're reduced to a province of the Persian Empire. Sin always diminishes people and nations. We need to take sin seriously. God absolutely forgives us when we confess our sins to him through Christ. But our sinful choices still leave serious consequences for us on earth. Since the beginning of the human race in the Garden of Eden, the damage caused by sin always begins with a first bite. And when we get a taste for sin, we don't want less. We always want more. Please forgive me for comparing sin to seized candy. But if you go into a seized candy store in the mall, don't you always get a free sample when you walk in the door? Why do they give away all that free candy? Because one taste makes you want to buy more. The people of Judah were once known as the children of God. Children of God. Now they were called people of the province. Here's a question for us. What are we called? What are we known as? Outside of these church walls, when we go back to our everyday lives, is there anything about us? that identifies us as people that love and serve and trust the Lord? Or do we just blend in as part of the world? People of the province. Look at verse 2. These, are, these came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Belshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. These families are closely associated with the Jewish leader, Zerubbabel. I think Zerubbabel has a really cool name. I wonder if they called him Z for short. The name Zerubbabel actually means born in Babylon. He was governor over the province of Judah and he was actually a descendant of the throne of David. Starting with verse 2 and then going through verse 35, Ezra lists the names and numbers of the families that returned to Judah. Let's try to imagine ourselves on this list. 
Imagine your name here in this list. Any of us under 70 years old would, would have been born and raised in Babylon. Those of us over 70 would have been infants, children, or young adults when we were taken into captivity. So, following God, going to Jerusalem would mean we would be leaving the only world we've ever known. We might be leaving family members in Babylon. Certainly we would be leaving friends. We'd be leaving homes, property, business, pretty much our whole lives, leaving behind. Would we leave our careers, our comforts, our social life? Would we leave everything to follow God? The exiles knew Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. They knew there was lots of work waiting for them. They were going to get their hands very dirty. But they were not afraid of the big job ahead. They were not afraid of the big journey. They were not afraid of this big change in their life because they loved the Lord. Trusted. They trusted the promise-keeping Lord. So they wanted to go. If we lived back then, if you and I lived back then, would our names be on this list? In other words, how many of us would sign up to follow the Lord wherever he wanted us to go? How many of us would follow the Lord knowing that there was going to be a lot of work or a lot of sacrifice ahead? Chapter 2 challenges all of us to think about the boundaries of our faith. Where do we draw the line? How do we pray? Do we say, wherever you want me to go, Father, I'm in? Or do we tell God, this is as far as I'll go? It is scary. It is intimidating when you feel God calling you out of your comfort zone, especially into uncharted territory. But you know what's wonderful? Our loving, all-knowing God totally understands that about us. He knows about our weaknesses and our fears and our, our anxieties. He knows them better than we do. Ezra 2 gives us the names of 50,000 real-life people, just like you, just like me, with flaws and fears. But they overcame them by trusting the Lord one step at a time. What's it mean to trust the Lord one step at a time? It means that we're willing to step out in faith without knowing what the next step's going to be. We leave that next step to God and the next step to God and the next step to God. We trust the Lord for every step we take because our eyes are on Him but not on ourselves. Let's look at a few names on this list. We're not going to read them all. Let's look at a few of them. There, there are some Hebrew names and Babylonian names here. Giving Babylonian names to captives was a common practice. We see that like in the books of uh, Esther and Daniel. Look at verse 3. We have the sons or the descendants of Parash. Parash means flea. F-L-E-A. Flea. The tiny little insect. Not the word that means to run away. Flea. Isn't it great that God put the fleas on the top of his list? Don't you ever feel like a flea? Like a tiny insignificant person in this big world? You're never insignificant. You are never insignificant to God. Not ever. God brought back 2,172 fleas to the promised land. Verse 4, the sons, the descendants of Shephashah. Shephashah means Yahweh has judged. 
Yahweh has judged. What a great name. When God says no to us, when God convicts us of sin, do we accept his judgment? Do we go through life thinking we are right or God is right? Verse 5. The sons of Era. Era means wild ox. So we started with the flea family in verse 3. Now we have the wild ox family. Do you know what this means? This means that God loves you and God wants you, whether you're a tiny little flea or a big old ox or anything in between. Drop down to verse 16. The sons of Ader. This was interesting. Ader's name means lefty. Lefty. Makes me wonder if they're Jerusalem had baseball back then. They needed a pitcher. Verse 17, the name Bezai. Bezai means in the shadow of God. What a wonderful name. Because the only way we can be in the shadow of God is to be real close, close by his side. Are we in God's shadow today? Verse 18, the name Jorah. Ah, Jorah, it means autumn rain. Isn't that poetic? Isn't that lovely? Hi, what's your name? My name's Autumn Rain. What's your name? Verse 19, my name's Hashem. Oh, what's Hashem mean? Hashem means broad nose. I think I'd rather be called Autumn Rain than Mr. Wide Nose. I'm grateful my parents didn't name me for any physical features. Look at verse 21 in there. It's tucked in there so neatly you could overlook it. It would be easy to overlook. The men of where? Bethlehem, 123 dear ones. This group is so small compared to everybody else. But these dear, faithful 123 souls left their homes in Babylon to settle in that little town where our Savior would be born. We have no idea what God's going to do through us when we decide to follow him. I wonder if those 123 knew what God was going to do in Bethlehem. Verses 36 to 39 list the priests that wanted to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Think about that with me for a minute. Wouldn't you expect every single priest in Babylon would want to leave Babylon to come back to Jerusalem to build the house of God? Isn't that what a priest, at least the priest, should want to do? Well, let's look. Verse 36 to 39. Here are the priests, the sons of Judea, of the house of Jeshua. There are 973 of them. The sons of Immer, over a thousand. The sons of Pasher, over a thousand. And the sons of Haram, over a thousand. Four families. Four families of priests whose hearts were moved by God to go to Jerusalem, rebuild God's house. But the book of Chronicles tells us there are 24 families of priests. There are 24 divisions of priests of the priesthood. So what happened to the other 20 families of priests? We only have four. We don't know. Maybe the priests got too comfortable in Babylon. It's human nature, right? When we get comfortable, we kind of want to stay where we are. Ezra 2 is showing us we have to be careful. It's really easy to get comfortable and lazy lackadaisical when our lives and our ministries are just perking right along, just humming along. Maybe the idea of rebuilding the temple seemed like too much work to many of those priests. They didn't want the hassle. So they passed. I've been thinking about this for weeks. So I'll just share it with you so you can think about it too. 
I wonder how many blessings I've missed. Maybe you've missed. Because we sense God calling us to do something, but when we look at it in that moment, it just looks like it's going to take a little too much time. Too much work. A little too much money. Too much energy from us. So we pass. I pass. Verse 40 delivers more disappointing news. Look at verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmel, of the sons of Hodavia. 74. 74 Levites. Levites are those who assist the priests in the temple. So about 4,000 priests returned, but only 74 Levites came with them. About 200 years before this, King Hezekiah of Judah restored temple worship in Jerusalem. At that time, 200 years ago, if you read that passage, you'll see that the Levites greatly outnumbered the priests. But here, as they're coming home to Jerusalem, apparently most of the Levites had better things to do. Ezra 2 is documenting the fact for you and me that it is always much, much easier to say we want to serve the Lord than actually do it. Big gap. Look at verse 41. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The exiles had a worship team to bless them on their journey and in their new lives. You know what's sad today? To see churches that struggle and divide among what kind of music they're going to sing. Here we see in Ezra that God's people were unified around music and around worship. That's how it should be. Verses 42 to 54 list the temple workers. If you look over that list, these, you know what temple workers were? They were people that just wanted to serve God any way they can. They just wanted to serve, do anything, work behind the scenes, whatever. They just want to serve God. We have so many people like that in this church. At the end of verse 46, we see the sons or descendants of Hanan. Hanan means God is gracious. Can you think of a better name for a servant than God is gracious? What a way to go through life realizing God is gracious. Do we think about that every day, that God is gracious? There's no greater privilege in the entire universe than to serve the living God. Our perfect Lord allows imperfect people to work with him to fulfill his perfect plan. By his grace, he includes us in kingdom work. You know what that means for you and me? That means you and I get to do work that will last forever. God is gracious. Let's drop down to verses 55 and 58. This lists the sons of Solomon's servants. These families were descendants of either the people King Solomon enlisted to build the first temple or they were the descendants of those that lived in his royal palace. This was a place of high honor. If you look at these names on this list, they re- represent all kinds of different nationalities. This is showing us what we should already know, that God's family is beautifully diverse. Ah, verse 59 to 62. This is the last group of names. And this is kind of a sad group. Because these poor people could not verify their lineage. Let's read it together. It's interesting. Try not to get confused by all the names. I'm going to come back and explain it. But let's read verses 59 to 62. Now, these are those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652 of these people. Reading on in verse 61. The sons of the priests 
the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakos, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. They searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. Family meant everything in those days. Your name meant everything. Your name confirmed your tribe. It confirmed your nationality, your right to claim property, your right to work in the temple. This big group of 652 people could not prove their ancestry. They had no record to prove who they claimed to be. In verse 61, did you notice that? We read, this about, read about this man named Barzillai. He was apparently a priest. And he married a woman from a noble family. Well, that's really nice. But he took her name instead of his own name because he wanted to climb in social status. His ambition cost him and his descendants the privilege of serving the Lord as priests. Ambition. I imagine many people today would rather live at the, in the penthouse of social status than be a priest or a pastor or a missionary. Clearly, though, the exiles of Ezra 2 were committed to obeying God's word. The law of Moses commanded that if someone claimed to be a, have priestly lineage and could not prove it, they must be excluded from the priesthood as long as doubt remained. Look at verse 63. The governor said to them, that they should not eat from the most holy things until the priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Who or what is Urim and Thummim? Well, they're a what. They're not a who. Urim and Thummim are objects that were worn on the breastplate of the high priest. That's about all we really know for sure. Some people think they might have been sticks or they might have been stones. They might have been white and black. So whatever they were, they were used in some manner to seek God's will in certain situations. So verse 63 means that people with questionable genealogies were not permanently excluded. It just meant that each case needed more careful research and seeking God. And I'm glad that's still true today in God's church. Certainly here, that before anyone is appointed a leader or a pastor or an elder, there's careful research in seeking God's word. As we've been going through this list in Ezra, as another list of names come to your mind? I wonder. Let's all turn together. Let's keep your place here, but let's turn to the last book of the Bible. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 to 15. I couldn't get this out of my mind as I kept reading Ezra 2. You know, Ezra 2 is a list of names, but at the end of the Bible we find out that God has more than a list. He has a book of names. Ezra 2 gives us the list of exiles, but this book that God has... It's not the exiles. The book God has lists the name of every man, woman, and child who, from any place around the world, from any place in history, who has accepted his offer of salvation. Amazing. Let's read about this book. Uh, Ezra, uh, Revelation 20, starting with verse 12. And, uh, and he writes, And I saw the dead, the great and small. Let's just stop there for a minute. He saw the great and small. He saw those ox and he saw those fleas again. Still, God's still keeping track of every one of us. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name 
was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a really important book, the book of life. Is your name is your name written in the book of life? Have you accepted God's offer of salvation in Jesus? As you're sitting here today, are you sure your name is written in that book? If you're not sure, but you'd like to be, as you leave here today, just leave your name and contact information at the back table in the foyer and ask for a pastor to contact you. Because you know what? There is no better peace. There is no greater joy every day of your life than to go through life knowing for sure that your name is written in permanent ink in God's book of everlasting life. Back to Ezra 2. We'll finish up. Verses 64 to 67. Gratefully, God did the math for us. Here it is. The whole assembly numbered 42,360, besides their male and female servants who numbered 7,337, and they also had 200 singing men and women. And then verses 66 uh, and 67 list how many horses, mules, camels, and donkeys they also brought along. So about 50,000 exiles returned to Jerusalem, and they had only about 8,000 animals. So this proves again that most everybody walked 800 miles, four months. As Pastor Mark has shown us, this is just the first wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel led the first group, Ezra is going to lead the second group, and then Nehemiah will lead the third group. All of this is going to take place over 90 years. Three generations. So let's think about that. Let's think about time from our perspective and God's perspective. First, our perspective. We live in a hurry-up world, don't we? We get impatient if an app takes a few extra seconds to load on our phone. We have drive-through windows at restaurants, so we don't waste all that time getting out of our car to get a sandwich. We may always be in a rush, but God never hurries, yet he's always right on time. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of God acting quickly, but never in haste. God took 90 years, 90 years to restore his temple and bring his people home. And you know what? God was fine with that. We need to learn how to be fine with God's timing. Are you waiting for God to answer a prayer in your life today? Ezra 2 is telling you it's okay. God's got this. God is going to answer you at the perfect moment, in the perfect way. Just try to relax. Trust Him. When God called His people to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, 50,000 people came, but so many more chose not to go. The ancient historian Josephus wrote this. He said, Many remained in Babylon, being unwilling to leave their possessions. It's nice to have possessions. But everything we buy should come with a label. Warning. Possessions can be habit-forming. and can cause us to love them more than we love the Lord. I'm going to put Mark 8.36 on the screen for you. Remember what Jesus said about possessions, about stuff? Jesus asked, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain everything, gain the whole world? forfeit his soul. You know, America is a rich country, 
In the 1980s, there was a saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. Here's the trouble, though. He who dies with the most toys still dies. Our toys can't save us, even if we have a lot of expensive ones. Wouldn't we all rather live than die? John 11 is going to come on the screen for you. Jesus also said this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? We need to hold Jesus tightly and our possessions lightly. Look at verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's household, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. Here's the wonderful fact about God. Whatever he calls you to do, he's always going to provide the way to do it. Every time. This is why we don't have to worry. I know we think we have to worry. But we don't have to worry. If God calls you to something, he is going to provide the way for you to do it. Maybe we should think about these people that gave willingly to the house of God. These people just arrived. They had not even fixed up their own homes yet. And already they were busy fixing the house of the Lord. They had been sent by Cyrus with a free offering, but yet they were giving of their own resources. These people, these dear people, these dear names in Ezra 2 have learned how to trust God. Their trials in life, they'd been through some hard things. Their trials didn't make them bitter. Their trials really made them better. So much better. Their faith grew stronger as they waited on the Lord, just like Isaiah said it. Verse 69. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 silver minas, and 100 priestly garments. You see how we are to give? God calls us to give according to our ability. God never calls you to give according to someone else's ability, just according to your own, with joyful hearts. And finally, verse 70. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, singers and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. Do you see that? When these exiles returned, after 70 years, God had their homes ready and waiting for them. Does this remind you of another promise Jesus made? John 14 is going to come up on the screen for you. Think about what we just read in Ezra and look at what Jesus said. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Just like the exiles returning from Babylon, God has our homes waiting for us in heaven when our journey on earth is over. God always keeps his promises. That's the message of Ezra chapter 2. God always keeps his promises. God promises us that when we sin, he's not finished with us. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so we can be restored through Christ, through our faith in Christ. He paid our price for our sins. We can be restored to God forever. God promises that he has your home and my home waiting for us in heaven when this life on earth is over. So here's what you and I need to do before we leave. 
Each one of us needs to decide where we want to write our names. Where do we want to write our names? Do we want to be on the list of those who will follow the loving, promise-keeping God no matter what? Or do we want to stay in Babylon? Make your decision. Our prayer team will be for you over here for you for prayer after the service. Let's pray. Father, how do we say thank you? There aren't words big enough for how big you are, how much you love us. Thank you for recording the names of these dear people to show us that you care about every single one of us. Thank you for restoring us to you. We were held captive by sin. You set us free in Christ. Father, I pray for everyone here that we wouldn't just close our Bibles now and think, well, that's a nice history lesson. But we would remember that you're calling us to follow you as well. Lord, make us people that are yours. Let us be people that are identified with you, not just people of the province. Father, I pray that we will be men and women that want to follow you wherever you want us to go. We thank you now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.